You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose No Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. And good afternoon, and it's a typical day in the Pacific Northwest. It's raining. So all you folks from California, stay in California. (laughs) It rains here all the time. That's what I keep telling them, even when it's bright and sunny out. When I talk to my friends from California, they ask me, how's the weather? I go, it's raining. (laughs) Yes, yes, uh, yes, that's an old joke in in Oregon. Um, (laughs) So welcome to another edition of the Bose Nose Show. I'm Jay Bozovich, your host, West Lane County Commissioner, and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Eugene, Oregon, because I just walked out of a Board of Commissioners meeting that started yesterday at 9 o'clock. So um, <laughs> it's been interesting, and that's one of the things we can talk about a little bit here on the Bose No Show. Now that I've got two weeks under my belt of our new leadership of the board, I am not thrilled to be to say the least. Um, our meetings have gone over time. We haven't been able to get through our agendas. And now we're stacking up things into the agenda that really aren't matters of county concern. I'm a little worried about the direction Lane County's heading in the next year. So we can talk about that a bit more. There's other things to talk about too. We got all sorts of stuff. We're closing down Camp 99. I've got you know road failures out on the coast that people are upset about because they want us to fix the road. Um, and it, it's just, you know, there's all sorts of crazy stuff going on in the world. And then the legislators started meeting this week. And before they even started meeting, they had already put in 1,500 new bills just from the committees. That's not the personal bills the legislators get to drop. They're estimating there'll be 5,000 different bills for consideration by the Oregon legislature in this session. I didn't know there were 5,000 things that needed changing in Oregon. My goodness. So I spent my entire day on Monday up in Salem at the Association of Oregon Counties going over bills and looking at whether to take positions on this one or that one. And, and I tell you, some of them are pretty damn scary. So we can talk a little bit about the legislature. We can talk about the new board. Uh, but we can also talk about some good things. And, and it's amazing how something good can happen, and it doesn't make any of the newspapers or TV news, at least not that I've seen yet. But yesterday, the Board of Commissioners took final action on something that we put, started putting in place last year. And this was us five old white guys, uh, again, that were on the board last year that was, you know, everybody thought was so evil. Um, we actually started something last spring in our budget process when we got some additional secure rural schools funds um, that we weren't expecting. So, and and we knew aren't going to be renewed. So we didn't want to fund ongoing expenses with them because it wouldn't be sustainable. You know, we didn't want to start a new program. That's what the legislator does that all the time. 
starts up unsustainable programs. So does Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Lane County, at least last year, we were responsible with our funds, and we decided those one-time funds, the best use of them was to set them aside. Well, we did part of it we took and we, we set aside um, as matching funds and per side accounts as the governor set up a program that was going to allow up to uh, providing almost a four to one match in dollars to, to, to handle our future PERS liability. So we set aside um, some money for that, about $2 million for that. But we had this $2 million of this one-time funds, and we set them aside in the budget process last year for a housing investment program where we wanted to use that money to leverage projects. We didn't want to be the sole funder of a project. You know, it wasn't enough money really that's going to build a lot of housing. But we wanted to be able to put it out and, and ask people to submit proposals for partial funding to their projects and, and thereby, you know, demonstrating local match a lot of times to go for federal funds or if they're applying to some other, um, you know, foundation or whatever else, you know, we could help them out with a, a piece of their funding. And we uh, put it out uh, in October for proposals. We got the proposals in. We had a committee that worked on on judging those proposals and making recommendations to the board. And yesterday, we awarded $2 million out to uh, five different projects uh, for affordable housing. And it was really um, a pretty neat thing to be able to do. And it was kind of, you know, it was finishing up something that the board started last year. So this is has nothing to do with the election of the new board or anything like that. No new focus there. This was something that we did on our own, um, you know, as as a board, you know, us five old white guys um, that, you know, I guess don't have enough diversity or something like that. We can't think um, a little beyond ourselves as um, I guess that's what the some of that thought was. But we, we, we gave this money out to some really great groups. And I just kind of want to remind folks of who we actually gave this money to. The first group was Sponsors, which is a, a nonprofit here in Lane County. It's pretty unique. They specialize in helping people transition out of prison and back into society so that they don't end up back in prison again or homeless, because that's what happens a lot of times. People get released from prison, and particularly people that have been in there for, for a while. They've served their time. Um, and they're coming back into society. And the only people they know were people they were associated with when they you know, became addicted and whatever else that got them in trouble and ended up in prison or the gang members and all that stuff. So sponsors provides this transition capability and some housing for some of those folks that um, really keeps people from becoming homeless again or just becoming criminal again. And it's really a really unique program and we granted them $200,000 towards a project that's going to be a little less than $1.5 million, where they're going to build a bunch of tiny duplexes there next to their existing facility on Roosevelt Avenue, and uh, you know, specifically to home, home some of these folks coming out of prison uh, and try and prevent people from becoming homeless. And then we gave some money to uh, NEGCO, which should be a f familiar name for folks here in Lane County, to expand something called the Polk Apartments. And this is a really unique project in the Polk Apartments house youth that were former foster youth, particularly homeless youth. And this is the 
the, the kids that aged out of the system or fell out of the system somehow or another. So, you know, the foster system in, in Oregon hasn't been the greatest. They've been in the news a lot, you know, how poor it works. And, and part of the foster system is quite often you turn 18 and you're suddenly booted out of your foster situation. You know, here, have a nice life. You know, even though you may not have good life skills and been bounced from foster home to foster home, and some of the foster homes haven't been that great for you, um, you know, you know, have a great life. This set of apartments that they're looking to build um, that we granted them about uh, $550,000 will house um, uh, 13 additional units for these youth um, that are transitioning out of foster care. And NEDCO, with that, provides financial education for these kids so they can learn how to budget, balance a checkbook and all that stuff, understand, um, you know, leases and there were, you know, landlord tenant agreements so they can understand how to be a good renter and everything and eventually transitions these kids back out into society to be successful rather than just kind of, you know, you turned 18, sorry, you know, don't let the door hit you in the butt uh, type thing. So that was one of the grants. Then we gave uh, another, um, 250,000 to Homes for Good, and their partners um, believe um, St. Vincent de Paul is also involved in this project for what's called the Legion Cottages and Cottage Grove. And that's specifically for some tiny homes that are going to house homeless veterans to get homeless veterans off the street into some housing, again, with supported services. All these grants are for supported housing. You know, the, the sponsors has case management and counseling that goes with that for those folks coming out of prison. The NEDCO project has case management and education for those former foster youth. The Legion Cottages is going to have folks that are helping these veterans, either with their mental health issues or their addiction issues or the combination of the two, whatever ended up, you know, putting them on the street and help them transition into permanent housing. And then the other project we gave money to is also in Cottage Grove called Square One Villages. And that's basically going to be low income for seniors and disabled. And again, is another small uh, kind of tiny homes sort of project, but that's specifically targeted seniors and disabled people. And then um, we also did a project uh, granted money to the uh, Commons on MLK, which is the uh, Lane County and Homes for Good project that's going to be this um, low barrier um, housing first model for chronically homeless people. And the folks going into that are going to be the folks that we've been identifying through our frequent user system engagement or FUSE project. And these are the folks that are eating up, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in emergency room, police response, jail bookends, um, uh, stays at the Johnson unit and, and all sorts of emergency services, EMS, ambulance, transports, all that stuff. They, they eat up anywhere between, you know, on the low end, we've estimated, estimated $35,000 a year. On the high end, they've estimated as much as seventy dollars to $90,000 a year. These folks cost the general uh, community of Lane County. And if we can put them into this um, housing first sort of model, we can actually trim that down to a cost of about twelve dollars to $14,000 a year, making an amazing return on investment for um, the area and doing these projects. So it was a pretty exciting thing to do yesterday. 
to grant out this $2 million in this one-time money. And I want to talk about the source of that money for a minute, because there's been a big push from Oregon Wild and a few other groups to ask Lane County to pull out of something known as the Association of ONC Counties. And the Association of ONC Counties is a group that um, is formed by the counties that have what's known as Oregon and California railroad lands in them. And this dates back to, you know, back when they were trying to get railroads built, the federal government was trying to um, incentivize railroads to build out west here. And uh, a group was formed that was supposed to build a north-south railroad up through um, western Oregon from California up through Oregon. And they got donated a bunch of land from the federal government. Every other quarter section within, I think, four miles of the center line of the supposed right-of-way. A lot of land. And um, the railroad failed, never got built. They put in a couple bridges here and there, but never really built the thing. And um, that land reverted back to the counties, and the counties were supposed to be selling it off to private people. But at the time, there wasn't a lot of demand for land. There was also some, you know, at that time, uh, some, you know, uh, who you knew type transactions going on where there are sweetheart deals going for some of that land. So the federal government stepped in and took ownership of that land back from the counties uh, around the turn of the century and started managing it for timber production for the benefit of the counties. And that was actually um, eventually, uh, you know, made into law and, and that formalized by an act of Congress in 1937 called the Oregon and California Railroad Lands Act. You know, it, it, and at that time, it set up those lands in permanent trust under um, federal ownership to be managed for the primary purpose of timber production. And the proceeds from that sale of that timber was to benefit the counties that were in that land and there was a formula set up at that time uh, between the counties of which Lane County is the second, gets the second most amount of money because we have the second most lands and uh, Douglas County is the number one recipient of ONC lands. But what's important about that federal timber receipt from ONC lands is they go into our general fund. Whereas the, the timber receipt that used to come off of the U.S. Forest Service lands go into our road fund and are highly restricted on how they can be spent. So it was the portion of the uh, secure rural schools payments that were replacing the ONC timber receipts that went into our general fund that was available for this project. Now, the fact that that, that SRS money came to us was because of the advocacy and lobbying that the association of ONC counties pays for with our dues. They hire lobbyists in DC that help push for some of that. They, in fact, um, at one point when the sequester was happening, happening, if you remember that whole thing, uh, you know that when that another government shutdown happened not too long ago with a different administration, and they agreed that they were going to sequester part of uh, of uh, federal programs. They tried to sequester the, the payments to counties that were due to ONC County money, and we successfully lobbied and corrected the fact that that is not part of uh, – it's not 
a federal program and was not eligible to be sequestered in the first place. And that advocacy by this association brought in more than $600,000 in two budget years uh, above what we would have gotten, but for the advocacy of this association. So the association's been really valuable to Lane County. And, and uh, it showed its value in bringing us additional funds. It showed us the value in bringing us the SRS payments in the first place, which have been well over $100 million over the years. Uh, and hundreds, I mean, millions and millions of dollars that have come into Lane County through the Secure Rural Schools payments and the timber replacement dollars that they've advocated for. And now there's actually a federal bill uh, that is a bipartisan bill sponsored by Senators Wyden from Oregon and it's a Democrat, Senator Crapo from Idaho, that's a Republican, to actually permanently fix the whole thing with the uh, ONC counties and the timber and everything and the lack of timber money coming into the western states it, with an endowment uh, set up that the interest would make those payments so it wouldn't be this constant ping-pong ball in the budgets. And um, that the drafting of those bills the ONC County's associations, attorneys and advocates were right there with Senator Wyden and Crapo drafting that bill. So, and, and are gonna continue to be there to help lobby for passage of that bill. Um, and it's really important for us to stay involved with that ONC counties, the association of ONC counties or AOCC as people like to abbreviate it. So the fact that we we're able to put all this seed money and incentivize these um, various supported housing projects, which total about 90 units of, of supported housing with $2 million is because of the ONC lands and the work that the AOCC does. So, you know, a little bit of a tie back and forth there between two different, you know, issues somewhat. But, you know, that, that big good news issue of how we set aside some one-time money and then used it strategically to work on an issue that everybody agrees is in crisis in Oregon, which is housing. There's nobody, I think, that you could talk to on either side of the aisle that can't agree that we have a housing crisis in Oregon. It's getting too expensive for the average person to afford. Rent, rents are going up and everything else. Trying to jump in there, Robin? Or am I hearing an echo back? Uh, you're probably hearing an echo back. Okay, sorry. I thought you were trying to jump in. <laughs> oh, no. I'm waiting for the other feature you're getting on to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll get to some really good stuff here in a minute. Um, but it, it, it's just uh, that I just want to make people aware of just there is this important association out there that people are, are – are kind of misrepresenting what they do and particularly relative to wilderness activities. The association did not try and reverse the entire Cascade Siskiyou wilderness. What they objected to was taking some of the ONC lands that were set aside by an act of Congress and converting their use by, with the stroke of a pen of an executive order. And frankly, if they had, donated other public domain lands to replace the land they took into the into the new monument into the expansion of the monument there probably would have been no objection by the ONC counties but they converted some lands without compensation that are, were set aside specifically to benefit the counties 
So there's a lawsuit about which takes precedence, the act of Congress or the executive order. And seeing people are pretty worried about the impact of executive orders right now, I don't think you could argue about, you know, getting that question answered. And that's really what that lawsuit's about. It's not against the um, actual, um, you know, uh, wilderness designation or the expansion of the wilderness. It's just about the conflict between expanding the wilderness on top of land set aside by an act of Congress. So that's where that goes. I'm going to pause for a breath here and remind folks that you can change the topic. If you don't want to talk about supported housing or the ONC counties association, you can give me a call here at 646-721-9887. Just press one and that's, that's Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire. Know you want to get in on the conversation. Again, that's 646-721-9887, and just press 1. And that lets us know you want to get in on the conversation. And we'll talk about whatever you want to talk about, You know, whether it's the um, Collard Lake Road down in Florence. If you're listening down on the Florence side, we can talk a little bit about that and local access roads and the fact that, you know, you know, when we stopped getting timber money, it, we couldn't afford to keep maintaining them. And, and uh, a board of commissioners long before I ever became a commissioner decided to stop maintenance of local access roads. And it's going to take a board decision to start maintaining them. And I'm hoping to get that conversation started here on the board. Or we can talk about anything else on your mind. But I want to sort of touch a little bit back into, you know, the board of commissioners and how the last two weeks has gone and also maybe some of the stuff up in Salem. And briefly just want to note that our meeting last week, um, we ran into the lunch hour in, in the morning of our, our first, first Tuesday meeting, couldn't finish our entire morning agenda then, started back up in the afternoon when we weren't scheduled to be going and ran for a couple hours then broke to have a meeting that was on our schedule with state legislators at 3.30, finished that, came back into section and worked past five and still did not finish our entire board agenda. And, it, and then you know, had and had meeting on Wednesday that was a, a board work session on the budget that ran past time. Come back again this week. And sure enough, we couldn't get all of our work done yesterday morning. We used our entire afternoon up yesterday afternoon and still didn't get to our full agenda, even though we had pulled one item off the agenda because it wasn't necessary to be on there. So we couldn't get through even part of the full agenda. And then we had to come back and finish it up today. And I had to literally walk out of the board meeting to, to get on the show here um, as they were wrapping it up uh, and getting ready to adjourn. I hope that's not a portent of things to come. Eventually, this new leadership figures out how to run an effective meeting and keep things moving along and to uh, work on their agenda better. But unfortunately, what I'm also seeing is all it takes to get them to have a future agenda item is to get somebody to come to public comment a, a, a week or two uh, ahead of time or just you know, get somebody, you know, set up a couple people to come to pub public comment have them comment on a topic, and then a couple weeks later, a board, board member will go, I want to talk about what those people asked us about two weeks ago. Can we have a work session on that? 
And lo and behold, we are now going to have a work session on the economic impacts of climate change on Lane County. So um, I, I, I kind of wonder where the county's going because it seems like we're also going to, you know, now we're going to have another work session on the ONC Counties Association and whether or not we should stay in them or not. Um, it's going to be an interesting year to say the least. Um, I'm just hoping that maybe things get better and the board meetings go smoother, but uh, it's pretty tiresome, hard on the butt, hard on, on, on the bladder to sit in a four hour meeting. <laughs> so uh, might be a little bit too much information there, but uh, it is just um, painful almost in, in both physical and mental way to watch a meeting just um, spin in circles and not progress. Uh, so be interesting to watch that. Unfortunately, there's a fiscal impact to this. It's not just about wasting commissioners' time. We have staff in the room that's waiting to do agenda items, and they're expecting to come and speak to the board based on the proposed schedule that was published you know, a week ahead of time that came out of the agenda committee. Oh, look, I'm a staff member. This item on the agenda requires me to be in the boardroom because I may need to be called on for some expert uh, opinion and background. So I see that's like the third item in the morning. So I think I'll plan on getting to the board meeting about 10 o'clock and I know I'll have to hang out maybe as much as 12. Well, if they don't get to that item at all in the morning and bounce it to sometime in the afternoon and then bounce it to Wednesday, what do you think happens to that staff person and whatever other work they had planned the afternoon of the next day? and meetings they might have already set up in the afternoon. You know, how much chaos does that cause for our staff? So there's an impact to, to a fiscal impact and a workflow impact to the board not functioning well. You know, and, and I always, you know, when I was chair, that's the one thing I tried to do is to keep us on schedule as much as I could. Sometimes it took longer because you can't always predict how long public comment will take. There are days where nobody shows up, and there's days where we get 40 people that show up to give comment. That part I'm not holding the, the, the new leadership responsible for. We really haven't had that much comment, so that's not the issue. So um, hope we can get our act together so we're not wasting staff time and taxpayer resources and tax dollars. Uh, that's my quick five minute commentary on that. Hopefully it'll get better. I don't know. So now to the marble nut house in Salem. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh. Some of the stuff they're considering up there makes your head spin. And what's crazy is some of it's going to pass. And I bet there's one that, that, Robin might want to speak to, and one that's probably been in the news the most, and that's Senate Bill 501. Is that what you wanted to jump in about, Robin? Is that the uh, carbon tax? No, no, no. That, that's the gun bill where it only allows a magazine up to five rounds. <laughs> what? Yeah. And you can only purchase 20 rounds of ammunition at a time, and you'll have to register you know, and apply for a permit to buy a gun. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, quick story. As, as you know, in, in Eugene Lane County, if you have an alarm system, it has to be 
yeah, it has to be permitted. And which was voted in, of course. And then one day I was have, hanging out at Radio Shack. This is like, I don't know, 20 years ago. And the DA came in looking for an alarm system because he got his house broke into. So the point is, is that it's easy to pass these things to, until it happens to you. And then watch you change your, your thinking on it. Yeah. So let's see. Uh, you're a bad guy. You know that if you... Uh, law-abiding citizens. Oh, look, he has. He may have a gun, and it's got five rounds. Yeah. Yeah, if you're a law-abiding citizen under the new law. And, right. and the, the silly thing is, is there is no modern gun produced today that has a five-round capacity. Yeah, the uh, I don't know that much about guns. I do know which end not to step in front of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I know a fair amount. I won't claim to be an expert, but I do hold a, a concealed weapons license, and I have trained tactically with my weapons because I wouldn't carry if I didn't train. Right. If you're going to carry, you need to train, um, and you need to know understand how to use your weapon, and you need to understand safety. You should also take first aid training, too. Um, but that's beside the point. There is not a modern weapon produced today that's five-round capacity. Revolvers are all six. In fact, if it's a lower caliber revolver, quite often it might be eight. Um, You know, I guess guess you could get up to some of the, like, the super magnum revolvers might only have five rounds in their their, uh, capacity, in their rotary chambers. Yeah, but you know what's going to happen, don't you? Oh, gosh, Andy. I'm only going to have one bullet. Yeah. And you got to keep it in your pocket. <laughs> yeah. Uh, of course, nobody knows what we're referring to, but <laughs> our age. Yeah, look at uh, Mayberry. <laughs> but uh, now that the, I guess the thing is, is that all they're doing is affecting law-abiding citizens. Anybody that's going to break the law, they don't care what it says. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, just even introducing this legislation is going to probably make a run on ammo in the state and, um, and weapons that have greater than five round capacity. <laughs> Cause they're going to have a good time trying to collect them up. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's going to be a point. In fact, uh, I think one or two other locations outside of Oregon where they were starting to do roundups met with a little bit of resistance. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, this is, it's not a smart bill. And I don't know if it was introduced just to kind of say, see, we, we're not going to pass this. We'll, go, we'll pass this less stringent version or something like that. And, and it won't be as bad as this big, scary one. Um, anyway, I, I just I worry for our Second Amendment rights in this session. But I also um, your favorite bill and mine is, is this whole idea of a carbon tax. And, and it's kind of, you know, this is no different than this having somebody come and testify last month about the economic impact of climate change. And now we're going to have a work session on climate here in Lane County. And I I kind of wonder what county government can do really to move the needle on, on carbon footprint for at all, because first of all, Oregon per capita has one of the lowest carbon footprints in the nation because we have so much hydroelectric generated power Beside the point, but, um, you know, if we're taking up time looking into a carbon policy or 
or climate policy here in, in Lane County, we're taking away time from working on the housing crisis and about 10 other things because we don't have unlimited resources staff-wise. I mean, we've got our budget balanced on the head of a pin. And, and you know, if we're going to add something to the workload, something's got to go away. So one of my questions to the, you know, the commissioners is they want to keep moving toward in this direction is first, if it's a, is it really a matter of county concern? And second, what are they going to cut to work on it? Exactly. And, and of course, carbon tax only profits one entity, and it's not the people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the carbon tax and, and the, the what they're looking the quote, cap and invest bill they're looking at in uh, Salem is going to be pretty interesting um, because basically it's just going to raise the price of anything that uses carbon and, and emits carbon or, or has carbon built into its, you know, which means everything from, you know, your food, to your housing, to your transportation, you know, there, there's carbon gets, goes into those some way or another. Um, you know, the, the energy it takes to manufacture it, the energy it takes to cultivate the food, um, the energy it takes to make the fertilizers, all that has a carbon footprint. If we start, you know, doing this carbon cap trade on, on emissions and everything else, all those products are going to go up in price. Because it, it, you know, it's it's you know the the corporation doesn't pay that tax. Well, and I hate to put ideas in Salem's head, but when I was in North Dakota, there was a well, we called it a fart tax, which is basically on a two dollar per head uh, for cows because of their emissions. Yeah, and they also complained when you inserted the catalytic converter, but we won't go there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, we we won't go there on them, but yeah, it just yeah, the idea um yeah, it's going to go through. This is one of these these bills where um you know, as as you're you're meeting with other county commissioners and you're talking about what kind of position you're going to take on it, um we've always known that this eventually will be passed by the legislature. The only thing we're trying to influence is something that all counties can agree on, which is there should be some analysis done of what is the impact to local government. How much is this new cap and invest system going to cost us? Because county and, and city governments, we do a lot that uses a lot of carbon. You know, paving roads, that, that, that black stuff we put down there, it's black for a reason. <laughs> it's got a lot of carbon in it, you know. And if you don't think concrete has a lot of carbon in it the footprint for concrete is incredible how much energy it takes to make concrete you know and and that is just you know a matter of fact so there's you know think of what the materials local governments use to keep their infrastructure together there's going to be an impact not to mention the fleets we all have to run to do all of our services and everything else and just the heat for our buildings whatever else um how much is that going to cost us, and are they going to offset that some way, or is it going to be an unfunded mandate down to local government? Uh, that's a question we've been asking them to look into and do an analysis of and come back with a program to mitigate the impact to local government. You know, everybody can agree to that. The other thing we want to make sure of is they don't use this as an end around on the, the constitutional restriction 
on taxes generated by the traveling public on highways having to be spent on the highway system. Basically, anything like a, a gasoline tax or vehicle registration fees can't be diverted into the general fund and spent on, you know, uh, whatever, you know, can, crazy. Can, can we have another big funnel that nobody knows what it is? Yeah, yeah. So, so one of the things we're fighting for is if if the if the new carbon uh, cap and trade, cap and tax, whatever you want to call it. Um, system goes into place. If there's revenue generated out of the transportation sector, it should be constitutionally restricted just as a gas tax would be. So that if you're going to derive money from the traveling public for the pleasure of driving their cars because they just happen to have to use gasoline uh, to fuel their cars or diesel, um, or even the electricity they use might have been generated using some kind of carbon uh, uh, fuel. That money needs to stay in the transportation system. You know, so aspects like that, even liberal counties like Multnomah County and Benton County can agree on it. And counties that you know completely don't want any sort of carbon uh, tax at all, like Harney or Malheur or some other, you know, some of the more conservative counties can also agree on that because it's a principle we all agree on. No unfunded mandates, and we really believe in the integrity of the road fund system and, and the constitutional restriction around that in the state of Oregon. So, you know, as we look at that bill, that's where we're trying to go because saying we're going to try and stop that bill right now is like stepping onto the tracks in front of a freight train and saying, whoa. It's not going to happen. What we hope to do is run down the tracks a ways and throw a switch and change, you know, maybe some of the direction and what track that train runs on, um, maybe so we don't get run over. Uh, well, I got a question for you. Sure. Uh, aren't you? Didn't you say uh, was it El Darpa or whatever Lane County Regional Air Authority? Oh, yeah, Lane Regional Air Protection Agency, El Rapa. El Rapa uh, is carbon our carbon emissions how is it in lane county and in oregon i mean do we really need to put a cap on there or well first of all el rapa doesn't have quite the authority to to regulate that because el rapa um because the state doesn't regulate it yet and, and it, it, they'd have to regulate it through deq for el rapa to be able to regulate that um they could though which is an interesting thing because um, El Rapa's board is becoming changing rather rapidly. Um, one of the things that happened today was I was pulled off as, of El Rapa's board and Commissioner Bernie was assigned to it. And he is a full-on believer in anthropogenic um, global warming and climate change. Um, of course, he only has a BA um, in economics not a BS in any sort of science degree, but uh, that's who they, is now on El Rapa's board instead of the one commissioner that does have a bachelor's of science and took advanced physics and chemistry as part of his, his college degree and worked for many years in using uh, mathematical computer models to predict um, natural behaviors in, in, the, in the 
and construct um, developments based on those models. Uh, but that's neither here or there. No, see, you can't do the emotional thing if you're going to throw facts at it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, we may see LRAP get involved in carbon stuff in the future, which would be sad because I really have supported LRAP over the years because there is a local benefit to having a local air protection agency. And there's a couple places where we've had benefit here. One of the first things is LRAPA actually gets to and issues permits and renewals much faster than the state does. Because if LRAPA wasn't here, it would be the state Department of Environmental Quality, DEQ, that would be doing our air permit review for the businesses here in, in Lane County. And the one advantage we have in Lane County in economic development is El Rapa is actually faster than DEQ. So if you want to choose where you're going to locate a business or whether you want to expand your business or whether you want to stay in Lane County and you happen to need to get air quality permits, there is an advantage to having El Rapa. You know, that local agency that's, that at least is staffed up and keeping up with their permit workload. The second thing is all the staff live here and work here right in Lane County. In fact, they're located in Springfield. So instead of paying for a bunch of folks in an office building in Portland, which is where DEQ's headquarters are and their, their air quality review folks are, that money for all those permits that those, those, and, it, and it's a fair amount of money stays here local and gets distributed in payroll here in our community where those guys are buying their dinner at Planktown in Springfield or they're shopping at the local Fred's uh, with their paychecks. You know, so, you know, there's, there's a secondary you know, advantage to having El Rapa. Uh, the other portion is that the local governments sit on that board as the voting members in, in general. So there is local influence over policy. So if you don't like what they're doing, you can go and complain to your city council or your county commission and ask them to, to talk to El Rapa about something they're doing. So where, yeah, where if it's DEQ, good luck. <laughs> Who are you going to talk to? To go up to Portland to try and talk to some staffer in a humongous department up there. You know, it, there's just w- one of 90 legislators. You know, whereas, you know, the, you know, you can talk to one of your five county commissioners or maybe one of your, uh, you know, five or eight city councilors, depending on which city you're in. So a lot of advantages to having El Rapa, but they aren't into carbon yet. But keep an eye on it because these times are changing. (laughs) So with that cheerful note, if you want to change the subject here on the Bose Nose Show, you can give us a call, 646-721-9887. Just press 1, and that lets us know you want to get in on the conversation. Again, that's 646-721-9887. 721-9887. Just press one and we'll talk about what you want to talk about here on the Bose Nose Show. Uh, anything else, you know, happening here in Lane County, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, our, our grants we provided out for the supported housing projects, or if it's about the association of ONC counties and timber policy and, and the whole uh, history there. Or if you want to talk about El Rapa and carbon policy and whether Lane County should get involved in, in having a carbon um, 
policy locally and trying to solve climate change with our limited resources instead of doing uh, the things we're mandated to do, like providing a jail and you know running elections and boring stuff like collecting taxes that we're mandated to do. Um, <laughs> and for you. And, yeah, yeah, and, and, or trying to you know work on some really serious issues um, that we can actually move the needle on, like housing and homelessness that we're already trying to work on. So um, it'll be going to be an interesting year. That's for sure. And, you know, I, I don't have a what were they thinking it, uh, this this week, Robin, because I really I, it's been a really busy week for me. I got one. OK, this is this is titled Musical Chairs. And anybody that's gone on the Washington Jefferson Street Bridge assuming that it's still separated as Washington Jefferson Street Bridge, has noticed that you go one direction one day, and the next day, nope, this lane's closed, that lane's open. Oh, now we got two lanes open over here, but we're merging and crisscrossing over there, and it's you, you think you got it down, the next day they change it completely around. Now you got to fight to get over to the other lane, which you thought you already had the pattern figured out. Yeah, yeah. They, they've been making those changes rather regularly, and they've actually been sending out press releases and stuff on the changes. But until you drive through them, you don't really can't really understand what they're talking about in the press releases. We're going to be moving this lane over eastbound to here, and we'll be opening up two westbound lanes on this spot and all that. It's like, yeah, right. Um, until you drive through it, it's pretty hard to figure out. Yeah, at least if they would put signs before you get up on the bridge saying you know left lane is closed so you get an opportunity to move over before then and also people don't be afraid to let somebody in traffic moves a lot better when we all cooperate with each other yeah well you know, this brings up an interesting discussion i had with a friend of mine so you'll see a lot of times people start merging way before they have to, you know, before the lane actually ends. Right. And, and, you know, and a lot of people think that's kind of like the correct thing to do. And it's courteous because you're not waiting the last minute to try and cut front and you don't run up past people and then ask in. It's actually the least efficient way to, to run traffic. And, and if, if you want traffic to move the best, Everybody should stay in that lane until it ends and do the one 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 merge at the end of the lane. And, and this is why. When you when you merge early and you stack up one 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 one, the stacking length you're gonna be is a lot longer than if you're stacking two by two next to each other. And what happens is you tend to impact it makes the, the backup longer in distance, and then you start impacting other intersections. So the actual correct way to merge and, 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 and probably the most efficient is actually to drive up that left-hand lane till the lane ends and merge at the last moment. Assuming somebody lets you in, otherwise you're just sitting there. That, that's true, but, you know, technically if, if, folks did that as a regular thing that's that's this is an educational piece right now i'm hoping people are hearing and i'm hoping eventually that gets to be normal habit because then that that left lane should back up equally to the right lane so that you're not really passing people 
you know, you're not going past somebody that already merged over. Um, and then, then if you do the one, 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 one at the end of the lane, things move better. It's actually, you know, they've mo- you, know, you can run computer models of it and you can show how it actually flows better to go that way. There you go. The following, the previous was a public service from KRB and Internet News Talk Radio. Yes, yes. And, and, but the thing is, I don't understand why they don't teach that in driver's ed. They teach in driver's ed? I guess. I don't know. So, yeah, it just, you know, it, it seems that you'll see people actually start driving half in each lane trying to keep people from passing them once they've sort of half merged over. Have you ever seen that or a truck do that? trying to prevent people from running up to the end of the lane. It's like people, if we all really thought about it and, and both lanes stacked together, you wouldn't have one lane passing the other and then do your one, 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 one right where the lane merges. Now, when traffic's moving at speed, you know, not backed up, yes, moving over a little bit early is actually safer. But at that, you know, that's with traffic moving at speed. But when traffic's doing stop and go, it's actually more efficient to pull all the way to the end of the lane. Yeah, I wonder. I don't know what the completion date is for the for the bridge, but I wonder if increasing the traffic sync signals, uh, say another thirty seconds, would kind of help it. I don't know. I think part of it's just the fact that, that people start that merge early. So it backs people up into the intersection. And I've actually, at rush hour, I've, I avoid that area completely because I've actually seen other roads back up like Lincoln Street backing up all the way into Fifth Street as people try and turn on to um, uh, 6th Avenue um, going towards the bridge because 6th Avenue is backed up from the ramp coming down off the bridge. And, and you know, it's, it's like this, you know, blocks away standstill traffic because people are stopping and doing not doing that you know they're not using the full length of that merge area to stack and it actually backs traffic up further so i i I don't think it changing the light timing down at the base of the bridge is going to change that that backup in during rush hour the backup's the single lane right well there you go see i'm not an engineer yeah, I know enough about traffic engineering to be dangerous. You know, I don't have a, you know, if I, you know, one of the things when you're a professional, registered professional engineer is one of the duties of being a reg- professional engineer is, is knowing what your professional expertise is and not stamping anything that's outside your expertise. And I would never stamp a traffic study or traffic plan because I'm not an expert traffic engineer. It's a subspecialty of civil engineering. Likewise, I wouldn't I wouldn't stamp a set of bridge plans because I'm not a structural specialty engineer. But I wouldn't want either of those guys stamping a set of plans that had stormwater design in it or um, some of the, the grading and other sanitary sewer systems and water systems that I do have expertise in that I used to stamp a lot of plans, you know and could be sued if they went the wrong way. You know, that's part of the other thing is when you put that stamp on a set of drawings that says, hey, I'm liable to be sued <laughs> yeah. if things go wrong. Or some people are the old saying is, uh, yesterday I couldn't spell uh, engineer, today I are one. Yeah, I, 
yeah, yeah. I are an engineer. Um, yeah, yeah. Which makes me, you know, gets back to that whole thing about, you know, I have a deep appreciation for good science and the understanding of how science is done, which is, you know, you know, it is never completely um, settled. You know, if so, we, we, we would, you know, not have the theory of relativity. And, and even that gets argued back and forth between quantum physics and string theory and everything else that goes on uh, in, in, you know, in particle physics and, and that whole idea of, of relativity. Um, that whole concept was completely outside and not thought possible by science before you know, some folks like Albert Einstein. So talking about any science being settled and not debatable and not having to continually test their theorem, which is basically what anthropogenic-driven climate change by carbon dioxide is. It's a theory. It's not proven. I, 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 I want to see somebody on paper write me a proof of how that works because I will show you where there's there's holes in that theory in multiple places with science, but really hard to do on a radio program because it would probably require a blackboard and, and several hours and education about things like absorption spectrums of molecules and bandwidths of, of, of the light spectrum that actually can get absorbed and re-radiated as part of the quote unquote greenhouse effect. Um, so, and the fact that water molecules are actually a much more effective greenhouse gas, water vapor is, than CO2 by magnitudes, orders of magnitude more effective. Yet a lot of the modeling of climate change ignores cloud formation and various aspects of water vapor in the atmosphere. But we won't go there today on the Bose Nose Show. <laughs> I'll leave that for people like Gordon Folks, who has a PhD in physics to explain, or Chuck Wise, who's a certified meteorologist to explain some of the, the, the faults in the whole climate change uh, theory and, and the fact that it really isn't settled science. So here I've revealed myself on the Bose Nose Show. I'm a denier. And I, I have this uncontrollable urge to say Bueller Bueller yeah yes yes as I, as I take us to school um, <laughs> but okay, faster. I, I will say you know people might label me as a denier but I do see the benefit of limiting our carbon output in the atmosphere it's never a good thing to change the composition of our natural systems on this planet I just don't think it rises to a level of emergency action and the consequences of some of those emergency actions are actually worse than the actual, you know, climate changes that will happen if they will happen. In fact, it is really pretty well known that during warmer periods than it does during colder periods, 
and in fact, you know, some of our, our, our major advances in civilization have been during some, you know, the Bronze Age warm period. Um, there was a nice warm period, you know, during the Middle Ages Renaissance. And, uh, you know, we've had some backsliding in some places where we had some little colder areas. Uh, you know, the, the uh, you know, there's a, a period there in the 1300s where, you know, it got pretty cold and rainy and England didn't do so well. But before that, they were growing grapes and making wine in England. You know, it, it's, uh, you know, I, I even think some of the analysis, if you if you believe the models and the climate is warming, some of the, you know, the detrimental effects they're calling for yeah, it might not be so detrimental. You know, there was a time when Vikings lived on Greenland. So don't know if I want to live there now. Yeah, Greenland isn't so green anymore. Yeah. But, you know, when they keep adding these taxes and, and stuff, sure, like you say, it looks, may look good on paper. But it's kind of like the going back in, into history and killing a mosquito, how it could change things. The analogy being is look look at how many homeless we have, and as things are becoming more and more expensive, and I think as one of our callers said one time, it gets to a point that you can't afford to even have uh, uh, and to park your RV in an RV park. Yeah, and there's a limit to how much uh, financial burden that people people can withstand. Yeah, and that's where I get into you know. I have a, an interesting flow chart up on the door of my office here. I don't have it in front of me, but it's basically, you know, it, it you know, as one of these flow charts where you answer questions, yes or no. And, and it gets down to, if you truly believe everything's happening as far as climate change goes, then the mitigation impact, you know, and, 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 and you know, so you got to think about what, what's the, all these efforts to mitigate it, what are those impacts versus adapting? You know, is the cost to adapt or the cost of mitigation to society worse? And I would argue if they even are, even, even if you accept the, the, the modeling and the science around it, and there is going to be this change in climate, is that there's actually more impact to the prevention that they're trying to put in place than adapting to the changes. You know, humans adapt pretty well. I mean, we live from rainforest to, you know, to the, you know, tundras of, of Alaska um, as natives in stone age societies. We adapt pretty well. I'm hearing the music come in there, which means uh, they're trying to give me a, give me the hook Robin's giving me that subtle hint. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Give me that subtle hint. We're running out of time here on the Bose Nose Show. I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope I didn't get too technical or preachy or, 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 or start taking you to school too much. But we'll be back next week. Hopefully it'll be a little bit more cheerful show. Although we did start out cheerful with that $2 million in grants. And I hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back 4 o'clock next Wednesday live from beautiful downtown Elmira, I hope, instead of the Lane County Courthouse. Have a great week.